Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship, Cyprus, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. God's plan has always been to unite us with Himself and other believers through His Son. Our new life comes with a calling that urges us to radically love others in new ways. Join us as we go through the book of Ephesians in this sermon series called Unimaginable. What makes a marriage great? Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but I'm not an expert on marriage. I thought about giving a variety of examples to demonstrate that for you, but all of the ones I came up with got shot down by my wife. (laughs) And if I've learned anything about marriage, I know that happy wife, happy life is a true statement. And if I had any motivation to keep my mouth shut in the first service, I have even more because she's sitting right here. But I wanted to share a couple of funny thoughts about marriage as we get going. Uh, These are some things I came across this week. First one, the secret of a happy marriage remains a secret. Or my personal favorite, a good marriage would be between a blind wife and a deaf husband. The first service laughed even harder at that. And this is just, if it's, you know, the modern age. I now pronounce you man and wife. You may now change your Facebook status. And I'll close with a more serious one from Martin Luther. Let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let him make her sorry to see him leave. Mm. We all want great marriages. Whether you're married or single, we all want the marriages in our lives our own marriages, our parents' marriages, our friends' marriages, to be on point. We need them to be great because so much is hanging in the balance and riding on this. But unfortunately, many marriages are not on point. They are not great. And why is that? Well, there are a variety of reasons for this. I want to point out two that are kind of connected. First of all, some people don't have a model for their marriage. Many marriages are struggling because they don't know what they are aiming for. And second, some people have a model, they just have the wrong model, a bad model. And so they are aiming for the wrong thing, selfishly chasing their own happiness and fulfillment, but that's not the goal of marriage. Now the good news is that we can have marriages that are on point because there is a right model, there is a good model one that works. How can we have marriages that are on point? How can we have great marriages? That's what I want to begin to talk about today. If you would, turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 22 through 33 this morning. And if you're wondering who in the world I am, I'm Jeremiah Meadows, and I have the privilege of being the community groups pastor here. Every now and then, they let me come up here to teach against their better judgment. And uh, no, it's a joy to be up here with you this morning. Last time I preached in July was on sexual temptation, and now Johnny gave me the passage on marriage. Uh, Anybody seeing a pattern here? No, in all seriousness, we have a fearless leader who backs down from nothing, and I'm grateful that he is our pastor, that he's my pastor. 
Sorry, I didn't know I was going to get emotional saying that. I'm just thankful for that man. But the reality is he didn't throw me another live grenade. He just needed to be out of town today for a family thing. And so that's why I'm here. But as we turn our attention to today's text, I want to orient us to where we are in the book of Ephesians. In case you are new with us this morning or you've been out for a couple weeks, let me just kind of give you some context to where we are in the book. After spending the first three chapters explaining our identity in Christ because of the gospel, in the second half of the book, chapters four through six, what I would like to refer to as the back nine, little shout out to all the golfers in the room, he talks about our conduct that is produced and fueled by that gospel, our conduct, how we live. And in the first part of chapter five, Paul calls us to live in the light, to live wisely, and to live in the spirit. To live in the light, to live wisely, and to live in the spirit. And his instructions to wives and husbands fit squarely within that, that framework. They fit squarely within that. If we are going to have marriages that are on point, great marriages, we must build our marriages in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the only hope we have. It's the only hope we have. And so as we walk through Ephesians 5, through 33 today, we'll discover, discover the model for marriage, how we can have marriages that are great. But before we do, uh, before we read, I want to pray one more time, if you would. Bow your heads with me. God, what a joy it has been to be here today with the church, with your people, worshiping you. I just love the gift of gathering corporately to sing and to hear your word read and to, to see your presence on display and the smiles and the faces of these men and women, boys and girls that I get to call brothers and sisters. Thank you. And God, we ultimately come here not to see one another, although that is great. We come here to see you, to meet with you. We need to hear from you. Our hearts and our minds need to be reset. We need you to wash out the junk of life and help us orient ourselves around the truth around you because you are true. And so that's why we're here and that's why we open your word. We don't need to hear human wisdom. We need to hear your timeless, authoritative, inspired truth. And so thank you for your scriptures. Would you use our time in them today to feed us your sheep? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we read through this, what we're gonna do is we're gonna read a few verses, stop and discuss those and read some more. And I wanna start with verses 22 through 24. Paul writes this, he says, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. "'For the husband is the head of the wife, "'even as Christ is the head of the church, "'his body and is himself its savior.'" Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be in this passage for three straight weeks. And over the next two weeks, Johnny is going to be devoting one week each to wives' specific callings and husbands' specific callings. And so the truth is, is that even though I'm on deck today, he didn't wiggle out of anything. He gets the heavy lifting. And that brings me a lot of joy. 
No, I just poke fun. But today we are looking at the framework. What I want to do is help us get the big picture, kind of see the, the forest and not get lost in the trees. So I want to see the big picture model of marriage. And you know what I did as I was preparing? I did a word count in this passage, verses 22 through 33. And here's what I discovered. The word submit is only in this passage three times. Two of them are commands and one is where it says, as the church submits to Christ. Three times. The word love is here six times or twice as many. But you know what? Two words are in this text even more. The word Christ is in this text seven times and the word the church is in this text eight times. And I find that fascinating that in a passage where he is squarely talking to husbands and wives, he spends more time talking about Christ and the church than their individual callings. And that's why we're going to spend a whole week on Christ and the church today. Spoiler alert. So the word Christ and the church are in here more than those others. And the first thing I want us to see here is who Christ is. Verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. As we look to this model for marriage, the relationship of Christ and the church, the first thing we discover is that Christ, the bridegroom and model husband, is the head of the church. And what does that mean? Well, there are six things that I want to rapid fire list for us. Number one, as the head of the church, Christ is its creator. Creator. Headship has to do with origins. Christ is the head of the church because he has brought it into existence. The church finds its origination in Christ. And you can read about that in Colossians 1, 16 through 18. Number two, Christ is the head of the church as its sustainer. He's the creator and the sustainer. It involves sustenance and it involves him being the one who keeps us in existence. He, he nurtures us and nourishes us. You read about that in Colossians 1, 17, 2, 19, and also Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. Number three, Christ is the head of the church as its consummation. All of history is moving forward to the, towards the goal of summing up all things in Christ. You can read about that in Ephesians 1.10. Number four, Christ is the head of the church by possessing complete authority over it. Headship involves authority. To be the head of a company is to be in charge of it. To be the head of the church, Christ has authority over it. And you can read about that in Ephesians 1.22. And again in Colossians 1, 16 through 18. Number five, Christ is the head of the church because he has priority over it. He, the, the church was created for Christ's benefit. We, you and I, have been created and recreated to serve Jesus individually and as a, as a body. And number six, Christ is the head of the church because he is the one who is to be preeminent and to receive the glory. And that's why we sing all these songs that he's the only one worthy of worship. He's the object of our praise. We don't sing praise to anyone but God. We sing praise to Jesus. He is the one who is lifted up and exalted. That's why as a church, we have a radical focus on Jesus and not you or me or anybody else. So Christ is the head of the church. And having told us, about Christ, one member in this model relationship, 
what is true of the church, the other member, the other half. In verse 23, we read that the church is his body. His body. And this isn't a new thought in Ephesians. Back in Ephesians 1, through 23, Paul wrote about Christ in the church as the head in the body. He's, he wrote, and he, referring to the Father, put all things under his, referring to Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And in between these two references in Ephesians, we actually have five more times that Paul teaches this concept of Christ being the head and the church being his body. So why does Paul refer to the church, to us, as Christ's body? What is the purpose of this metaphor? He is driving home the point that by virtue of Christ's life, his death and resurrection, and our faith in him, we have been recreated into this new entity of people that are inseparably connected to God, to Christ. Inseparably connected to him. We aren't just redeemed and forgiven and all of those things by Jesus as if it just like breaks us from our past and from sin, we are joined together with him, collectively with one another and with him as the head of the church. And if you think back to Jesus's prayer in John 17, you'll see this, this in his own words. And here's what's fascinating about John 17. It's one of the very few times that you and I get insight into how Jesus prays for us. Did you know Jesus prays for you? It says that. It says that he intercedes for us. That takes, I take great comfort in that. It just stirs my heart. Can't help but get emotional when I think that Jesus prays for me. And here's how he prayed for us in that passage, verses 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, talking about his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Listen to this language. That they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is about to be betrayed and arrested and crucified and we were on his mind. If there's a reason to shout hallelujah, that is one. <laughs> and he brings us together to be a part of him. We are his body, he is our head. He has made us his forever and he is now working out his will and his way in us, through us. We are the means by which he is accomplishing his purposes. Us, broken, failing sinners. What a thought. And what does the church do in response to Christ making us his body and him being our head? How do we treat him? Verse 24 says, now as the church submits to Christ, we submit to him, We set aside our will, we set aside our desires, our plans, and we do what Jesus tells us to do. We order our lives about what, around what Christ wants and we fulfill his plans, not our own. That's who we are and how we respond. And so the first thing this text makes clear is that in the model relationship, Christ is the head and the church 
is his body, and based on this ordered relationship, the church submits to Christ. As I mentioned earlier, in the coming weeks, we're going to see that in our marriages, there is a design, there's an order, and the way that that impacts things, it, it, it changes everything about how we live with one another as husbands and wives. And the model of Christ and the church is meant to teach us that God has created marriage to work in a specific way with husbands as the heads and wives as those who are the body. Our marriages can only be on point if we model them after this design, after this truth, after the fact that Christ is the head and the church is the body who submits to him. Let's look at verses 25 through 27. So it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In this section after telling husbands to love their wives, Paul gives them clarity about how they are supposed to do that. And if verses 22 through 24 told us about who Christ is, verses 25 through 27 tell us about what Christ has done through his cross and resurrection, through his death. Verse 25 tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And this is what makes Jesus this church is savior, as we saw back in verse 23. Jesus gave himself up for her. And yet another reminder that he willingly went to the cross. And that's really important for us to remember. Jesus chose to lay his life down for us. The Jews, the Roman soldiers didn't get the best of him. They didn't trap him or trick him. He surrendered himself to them. And that makes the cross all the more wonderful and it gives us reason to stand in awe and wonder at the great love that Jesus would choose that for us. Choose it. He doesn't just say that he loves us, he proved it by passing the ultimate test, laying his life down for us. Jesus lovingly and sacrificially gave his life for the church. Now, why did he do that? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but Paul gives us three right here in this passage. And the first one is in verse, these are all in verse 27. First one is, it's, he says, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And I've put it simply, Jesus lovingly gave his life for the church to sanctify her, to set her apart, to make her righteous. He did this to change us. On our own, before we were saved, we were dirty, we were filthy, we were stained by sin. And the blood of Jesus washes us clean, making us whiter than snow. But if you're paying attention, this verse has this really strange phrase. What does it say? The washing of water with the word. That's how he did it. On the surface, it almost sounds like baptism. There are entire denominations that believe that's what this means. They think you have to be baptized to be saved. But that's not what this is referring to. This is referring to our new birth and the re regeneration that it has brought. It's referring to the fact that the blood of Jesus has 
been applied to our hearts and it has washed us clean. I think the reason why he uses the word water is because that's the most common cleansing agent. I would want to say all of us, but probably most of us took a shower this morning and we used water to wash ourselves. It's a common phrase. It's metaphorical. But the word of the gospel, when we believe it, it washes us clean because it applies the blood of Jesus to our hearts. So Jesus gave himself to sanctify the church. The second reason Jesus gave his life was to make the church beautiful for himself. Verse 27 says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Jesus is the definition of beauty. He's perfect beauty. And he's worthy of a beautiful body. And what is amazing is that he didn't love us because we were beautiful, but his love makes us beautiful. Before we came to Christ, as I said a moment ago, we were completely ravaged by sin. We were, it left us ugly. It left us maimed. We weren't desirable to look at. But in that state, he set his heart upon us and he chose us and he laid his down life for us, lays down his life for us. So though we weren't beautiful at all, Jesus saw us and he wanted us and he died for us in order to make us beautiful. To make us beautiful. And his love is so thorough that it doesn't just wash us clean, it transforms us into Christ's beautiful body, the church. So that's the second reason. And the third reason Jesus gave his life for the church was to make her morally pure, to make her internally beautiful. Verse 27 closes with the phrase that she might be holy and without blemish. And I don't know about you, but this reminds me of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system. They weren't allowed to just sacrifice any old animal. They were told to sacrifice the very best animals, those that were without blemish because These sacrifices were pointing forward to the day that Jesus, the perfect final sacrifice, the sinless, spotless lamb of God would be the final sacrifice. And as our completely holy, pure Lord and head of the church, Jesus deserves a body that is morally pure, that is internally beautiful, one that reflects his righteousness and perfection. And as the Holy Spirit continues to work in us, those of us who are followers of Jesus, who have trusted in him, we are being made holy, slowly, but surely. And I know it feels slow. And sometimes you wonder if it's ever gonna happen as you fight sin. But one day he is going to finally conform us into his image. When we are glorified and perfected, we will be as beautiful as he is. And we long for that the spirit dwells in you, you long to be made perfect because fighting sin is a beating. It's exhausting. And our hearts just break over it, don't they? Our hope is that one day he's going to actually make us perfect. So Jesus gave his life for the church to make us morally pure, internally beautiful. Now I want to Close by looking at the, verse, the last few verses, 28 through 33, to see what Christ is continuing to do 
All of that was talking about what he has accomplished through the cross and what will eventually be accomplished through our sanctification. But let's look at these verses, see what he's doing right now. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So after telling husbands to love their wives in the same manner as Christ loved the church, as their own bodies, he explains that no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. We belong to him. We're connected with him. And because everybody loves themselves and loves their own body and takes care of it, Jesus nourishes and cherishes us. Anyone who loves themselves doesn't neglect their basic needs. They don't hurt themselves. You eat, you sleep. You don't intentionally harm your body. They take care of and they adore themselves. As a culture, we are awesome at this. Adoring ourselves I mean, we've like turned a little phrase into like our pet thing, self-care. We love self-care. We throw all kinds of things under the label of self-care. Margaritas on Monday at 9 a.m., self-care. $20,000 weekend getaway on a credit card, self-care. Netflix binge for five hours, no sleep, self-care. I mean, we're ridiculous. Thankfully, Jesus practices a different kind of self-care and he practices a perfect self-care. Because we are his body, he gives us what we need, not what we want. Our self-care is about what we want too often. He provides for us physically, spiritually, emotionally, and on and on. And here's some ways that he does that. He gives us the gospel to meet our deepest needs, not just to save us from sin, but to give us this ongoing means to grow and to fight sin and to experience his nearness and his joy. He gives us the church and he provides gifted men and women to lead, guide, and serve us. And I love being on this staff because I have coworkers galore. I could just start naming them, but I might forget one and I don't wanna do that. But you know them. These are men and women who deeply love Jesus and they serve us endlessly, gladly. And you are included in that. There are tons of you in this room right now. I, you could, I could just start rattling off your names and I'm for sure gonna fit some, forget some of those, some of yours. But you are a gift to God's church in the way that you pour yourself out to love people, to serve people, to teach, to hold babies across the way and all the other thousand ways you serve. That's a way that he nourishes and provides for his church. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to enable us to walk by faith and become who he made us to be. So he nourishes and cherishes the church. And why 
because he wants to give us life and he wants to give us joy. And then in verse 31, Paul goes to the OG Old Testament original marriage verse from Genesis 2, 24. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. But he doesn't stop there. The next thing he does is he makes one of the most intriguing, confusing, brain-splitting statements in all of the scriptures. I've been studying it for years and I still can't even come close to wrapping my mind around it. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This verse, which originally spoke of Adam and Eve and their marriage and how God brings man and woman together, has always pointed forward and found its consummation in Christ and the church. That's what he's saying. I don't understand it beyond that, but that's what I got this morning. So human marriage prepared the way for, points to, and pales in comparison to the relationship of Christ and the church. And here's how I know that. This is one way. In Matthew 22, 23 through 33, Jesus has an encounter with the Sadducees. This is in a passage where there's all these different groups trying to come and stump Jesus. We do stump the pastor. They were playing stump Jesus. Stupid game. Nobody ever was able to accomplish it. So the Sadducees, and if you need your cheesy pastor joke today, this is it. My youth pastor always taught us. The Sadducees denied the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. So bad. So bad. But they attempted to stump Jesus, and here's what they said, okay? They said, well, suppose there's a guy who dies, and then his wife is a widow, and then she, like one of his brothers marries her, which was the prescription in the Old Testament. You can go read about that. And what if that brother dies, and then it just keeps happening like seven times? Who's her husband in the resurrection? And they think they've dropped the mic. Well, Jesus picks up the mic, and he says this. Well, let me go there, because I I lopped off the end of the verse earlier. I don't want to miss it. He says in verse 30... You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so what this teaches us, guys, is that husbands and wives, their marriage is only temporary. It has an expiration date. It's going to end one day. Now, depending on who you are and how much you like your spouse and how good your marriage is, right now you're thinking, oh, man, or hallelujah. (laughs) Don't exclaim either one. Just laugh. Don't make eye contact with your spouse. (laughs) But in all seriousness, though, this helps us grasp the weight of everything that Paul has been trying to drive home. And it's this, the model relationship for marriage is Christ and the church. And here's what you'll see if you look at the scriptures. Right now, today, we, the church, are Christ's body, but there is coming a day when Jesus returns that the church is going to become Christ's bride. We are going to become his bride. Revelation 19, 7, 9 says this, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. 
For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen, pay attention to this, is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Do you understand what all of this means? Every wedding ceremony that we go to, as great as it is, it's just like this tiny, weak, broken preview of a ceremony that's going to happen that will blow them all away. And every marriage in this room and every marriage throughout history is this little window. It's this little opportunity to get ready for this. One day the church is going to be ready. It's not, a, it's not an if, it is a then and when. It is going to be ready Sorry, I lost my place. We will be ready. We will be sanctified completely. We will no longer have any stain of sin whatsoever in us, any, anywhere in our conduct, in the way that we look or behave. We will be holy and beautiful inside and out because the Spirit is going to complete His work of making us exactly like Jesus. So as you groan and you fight your way through fighting sin and you get tired and you want to give up, don't give up. It all is going somewhere and it is sure to happen. This gives us hope. And on that day, we are no longer going to merely be Christ's body. We are going to become his bride. Every single one of us in, in this room who is a believer in Jesus, men, women, boys, girls, married, single, doesn't matter. We will all become his bride. And the incredible reality is that all of us in the church get to help one another get ready for that day. That's why we have community groups. That's why we have children's ministry. That's why we have student ministry. It's all preparing us for our bridegroom. That's the purpose of all that we do. To glorify him, to worship him, and to be ready to do that with him in eternity as part of him. One flesh in marriage, one flesh then. And we get to prepare for that day by seeking holiness and purifying ourselves, becoming more and more like Jesus. And those of us in the room who are married, if you have a spouse, your privilege and your weighty, incredible responsibility is to do everything within your own ability in the Spirit's power to help your spouse become ready to. That's the purpose of marriage right there. We all get married for a thousand reasons. I'll never forget when I was in a counselor's office early on, he asked me, why did you get married? And I listed some things. And he's like, uh, that isn't any other reason why God put you with your wife. And I loved the corrective. I got it early. 
I've spent the rest of my time making a mess trying to reorient that. But the reality is that is our purpose. The way I tell it to husbands and wives when I officiate a wedding is I look at them square in the eyes and I say, you are going to pursue your own happiness in your marriage, but that is not why God gave you this man or this woman. He gave you this person so together you can become holy. That's why you're here. That's why he's done this. And so may everything that we are, everything that we think, everything we say, everything we do as men and women, husbands and wives or not, push us towards Christ and push those around us towards him and make us more like him so that we may hasten the day when he returns and we are face to face with our glorious, all-sufficient, worthy savior and we are fit for him. We are what he deserves. May we become that bride. Let's pray. Father, this text is just so heavy. It's so hope-filling, but there's just so much here. And I just, all week, my heart has been simultaneously wrestling with like, this just isn't who I am and my marriage isn't there yet. And yet I'm so filled with hope that you have said you will accomplish this. And so all of our work in the Spirit's power is not in vain. And that just fills me with joy. It gives me courage. It gives me endurance. And Father, I just pray that this, this message this morning would have that effect on all of us in here who are your sons and daughters, that it would stir us up to do everything we can to pursue holiness and to help others around us to pursue holiness too. That we would get ourselves ready for that day when we become Jesus' bride. Help us. We need a lot of help. We can't, can't dare to do this on our own in our own strength. We need you. We need your grace, all that you provide. Thank you for giving it to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bayou City family, visit us online at bayoucityfellowship.com or download the Bayou City Fellowship Cypress app to find community in the body of Christ.